two and a half songs in before I realized there was a screen up there. Um, and the funny thing was, last week when I was here, because uh, when you're a pastor, you kind of go into every church and you're kind of looking at what you like and you kind of remember that. And then you look and you go, oh, I don't like that. I changed that. And I, and I was sitting here last week and I went, you know, if I was a pastor of that church, the very first thing I would do is put a new screen up. <laughs> and I walked in and I went, that's the power of prayer right there. <laughs> We are in uh, part two of this kind of three-part series, and I said last week, and I'll, I'll give the disclaimer again, I said we're, we're kind of doing a, we're, we're trying to get to a point, which comes next week, and, and we're going to kind of go from point A to a couple of different points, and I said along the way we're going to see a lot of things, we're going to point them out, but I don't have time to stop and show you all those things, and we're going to do the same this week. So I'm going to dump a whole lot of things on you, and you're going to go, oh, wait a minute, that was loaded, and it is loaded, but we, we got to keep going because we're going somewhere else. And uh, hopefully we can get, we can get through that and, and get you to that point where you, we don't lose you along the way. Uh, last week we started the story. We're kind of working through the, the Bible a little bit. We started in Genesis and what Genesis was all about. And we brought you up to Noah and to the flood. And now we're going to pick up from there. And we've been talking about this pattern that we said emerges uh, where the design is to be in communion with God. And out of that communion, there's a commissioning. There's things that we're to do. And if we, then we choose what we're going to do. And if we do those things, it actually reinforces our communion. But inevitably, we choose to do other things, either, either what we would call sin, kind of a willful violation, or just we just miss the mark and we drift away. And in that drifting away, uh, there's consequences to those actions. And, and, and we can come back through repentance, come back into communion and, and continue that event. Or if we, if we don't repent of that and we continue on, then we go into what we call chaos or, or confusion. Chaos being the state of the world or state of things around us, and confusion would be just us personally. And in those points, then we need a, a path back, and, and God provides those paths back to the place where we're supposed to be, which is communion. So we've been looking at that pattern and saying that pattern, the theory was that pattern repeats itself throughout the Bible right up to the time of Jesus. So uh, we looked at that last week, and now we're into Noah. The Noah, they had the flood, they come to rest, and you've got Noah in this state. Uh, if you know this movie, you'll, you'll appreciate it. But you've got Noah in the place of going, okay, now we're on dried land. Now there's been this this whole thing that has just taken place, and, and he and a, a few few people are, are kind of figuring out what's next. And uh, so no doubt Noah has a lot of questions, and, and I would have a lot of questions too. I even have questions about Noah, kind of like, um, what kind of lights did Noah have on the ark? Well, they were floodlights. And where was Noah when the lights went out? Well, he was in the ark. Yeah. And why couldn't they play cards on the ark? Because Noah was sitting on the deck. And was Noah the first one to come out of the ark? No. He came forth out of the ark. You got to be a King James appreciative of that one. And finally, where did Noah keep the bees? In the archives. 
Nothing else today. You got those. Take and share. But seriously, think about this a little bit. Like, what, what, if, if you're Noah, what do you do now? Um, like, you've just seen this, this catastrophic event. And, and in the midst of all this catastrophic event, you know that the hand of God, one, prepared you, protected you, and has now delivered you. And now you got to figure out, now what? No doubt you want to stay close to God in that. And in Genesis chapter 8, in verse 21, and we'll kind of walk you through this, this story a bit, you, you have God making a statement, and God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now look at this line. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Two, two things are loaded in that. One, God knows our predisposition to sin. Two, and I don't know what to make of this, still rolling it around. It fits my theory, so I like it. When does it say that we become corrupted? Are we born with sin, or do we take on sin? Theologically, you can roll that one around. Have fun with that one a little bit. But here's the thing that we do know. Go back to the, you know, in, in Eden. They're in the perfection, in paradise, and they, they eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this, this, this was not a blessing. They didn't gain from this. Because if you really think about it, all they knew was good. All they knew was what was good. And when they took that, they didn't gain something other than the knowledge of evil. And that, that shadow of that tree of knowledge of good and evil is a shadow that will last to the end of, of our time. And Noah is no exception to that. It doesn't say that Noah was sinless. It said Noah found favor with the Lord. Noah was still predisposed to sin, predisposed to the knowledge of good and evil, making decisions. And, and it doesn't take long before he makes some bad decisions, even, in, even after this encounter. But now he stands on this dry land after all of this destruction. And what's he to do? Well, you turn the page. You go to Genesis 9. And something begins to happen because God blessed Noah. And he blessed his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So what does God do? Well, God brings them into this, this protection place. They're, they're in communion with God. They build an altar. They worship God. They're in communion with God. And right away, God gives the commissioning. I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, if you remember last week, we said that God gave the same commissioning to Adam and Eve. He said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply, and I want you to fill the earth. I want you to subdue it and take dominion. So it's interesting that God drops that piece from the original commission. And, and, and when you look at the subduing and the take dominion, that, that is good when it's, it's done in the right way, but if it's corrupted, it becomes evil, and it becomes control and dominance. So when Noah gets the commission of Genesis 1, it's different. It's still 
be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's still go and do. And God says in verse 13, I've set a bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant. And this word gets introduced. We said last week that God gave a promise. He embeds this promise in the story. And, and I'm appreciative to a, a, a teacher named Chuck Missler who I unpackaged those names for me. And I remember reading that and just being in awe of this, this promise that's embedded in the story. But now he, he ups it an ante. He goes from promise to a covenant, to a, 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 a oath isn't a good word for it, but it's like that. It's, it's something that God says, I am willfully binding myself to you with this pledge that I won't break. He says, I'll, I'll never destroy the earth like that again. Now remember, God knows the heart of a man is bound for evil from his youth. But he looks at that and says, nevertheless, I will not do this again. It will not be necessary. Because you look at God as not a defeated God, but as a victorious God. And God's looking at this and saying, I don't have to do this because I know how we're going to make this work. So there's a requirement of Noah here that says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth good deal. On the other hand, God says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to watch over you. And Adam is commissioned to, to go and to fill the earth. And then you turn over a couple of pages and you get to Genesis chapter 11. And, uh, and Genesis 11 starts off with this part. It says, now the whole earth had one, one language and the same words. And it, it's kind of a neat way to say it, is, is they spoke the same language and they understood each other. They, they got each other. So there was this clarity, there was this understanding. So they didn't have mismeaning to the words, they, they understood it. It's just a, a way of saying and getting the picture that, that there's this sense of unity among the people. They, they, they have this commonality about them. Now you remember the commissioning was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was, that's what they were called, and at first they do that. So the sons of Noah, Jepheth, he migrated down and, and towards the, the, the west, towards the coast, it says. And Shem, he traveled east uh, towards the hill countries, towards the, the inner parts of Asia. And the sons of Ham, it says that they pushed down into the, the heart, into what, what we would look at as Babylon or Iraq now and, and into Egypt and Saudi Arabia, into that area. And it says something, if you go back a chapter, in chapter 10, verse 8, it says, and it mentions this one name, and it's a name I knew because if you grew up watching Bugs Bunny, you would remember this name. The name is Nimrod. And Bugs would use it in a derogatory term of what a Nimrod, which I always thought was kind of a, an idiot, but then you read Genesis, and Nimrod is actually the opposite. It, it describes Nimrod with these words, and, and whatever your translation has, it will be something like this. He was the first mighty man. But you go, oh, he was, a, he was a strong guy. He was a big, strong guy. And yes, probably was. He was probably a warrior. But it also means this, as a mighty man, is he dominated other people. He was a, a tyrant. 
He was a dictator. He, was a, he, 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 he controlled people with his might is, is what that means. And you have to understand that in order to go to the next chapter, chapter 11, after the, the, the one voice, you know what story comes out of that is the Tower of, of Babel. Tower of Babel is one I'd love to talk about sometime because it's just, it's fascinating. But, but there's a couple of characteristics. One is, and this again is, the, is a picture throughout the Bible that you want to be aware of, is, is when it talks about mountains, mountains are, are, are the dwelling places of the gods. So you could have Jehovah God, or you could have what we call the, the under-gods or the demonic powers. The powers and principalities will tend to live in mountains. So when Jesus goes to a mountain, pay attention, because he's probably going right up to the doorstep of a demonic principality. And, and all of a sudden you read that, that story and you're going, ooh, ooh, that's powerful. So, so mountains are dwelling places of gods. And what these descendants of Nimrod do is they settle. And, and, and you notice what they say? We need to stay right here and build our empire and not get dispersed. But the commissioning was what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And if you pay really close attention, you see that they are reversing the command of Christ, of, of, of God, and saying, one, we're going to build a tower, we're going to build our own mountain, and instead of us going to the gods, the gods are going to come to us. And here's how we're going to build the tower. We're going to use bricks. Again, here's, here's another thing. You, I'll tell you about this, and then you can see it throughout the Bible. Bricks are never viewed as a good thing in the Bible. Anytime God refers to us, refers to us as what? Stones, living stones. Altars had to be made out of stone. It was forbidden to make an altar out of brick. And you go, especially if you're a builder, you'd go, but it's a lot easier, stronger, more durable. But there is an overlay meaning here that will drop on you and you can kind of think about. Is when it talks about bricks and it talks about stones, it's not just talking about building materials, it's talking about the way we treat people. And what a tyrant leader does is it says, I'm going to use people as if they're all the same, and I'm going to use them as bricks, and then I'm going to build my empire. And so the tyrant leader takes the, the plan of God, which is I want you to treat people as individuals and have them come together and choose to come together, and instead I'm going to dominate and make people into what I want them to be. So there's a whole package there that you can begin to unravel with this story. And God looks down and goes, that's not how I want it to be. That's not my design. I want, I want you to be stones. I want you to see people as individuals. I want you to see the value of the pieces. And I want you to know that the only way that this comes together is when the master builder begins to assemble the stones together. You think you can do it by treating everybody the same, making everything the same, and you can build your, your mountain and be a God. That's not the way of God. So it says 
in verse 9. Not that God came down and confused them. It says that God came down and changed their languages. And the changing of their languages, remember, it starts off by saying they all had the same language and they all had the same words. They all understood each other. And all of a sudden, this all changes. And the result of it all changing, because they had deviated from the ways of God, is there's confusion. And when there's confusion, you begin to find people that are like you and you move off to somewhere else. And God's plan to, to have them scatter begins to happen, but it's not the way that he wanted it to be. He wanted them to choose to do that and to branch out. And now they're in a state of chaos and confusion. But what does God do in the midst of the chaos? In the midst of all that's going wrong, what does God do? And you turn the page to chapter 12, and chapter 12, verse 1, starts off with this. Now, in the midst of all that's going on, all the history that's just unraveled, now, the Lord said to Abram, this guy living in, in parts of Iraq and Babylon area, and look what God says. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And you knew all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Who's doing all the work? Somewhere in our, in our thinking, especially if you, if you grew up in church, you grow up thinking, I must, I must, I must, I must, so that God will. And we take that all on. And then for the rest of our Christian lives, we try to be good enough, we try to do enough, we try to be right, we try to, we end up living by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because we classify what we think is good and right, and then we strive to do that so that we would have God's approval. But God starts out and says, okay, this is, you're in chaos. Sin is, has corrupted this. You're trying to be your own gods. You're trying to control people for your own means. I'm going to step in. I'm going to intervene, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do everything for you. I'm going to do the work, but here's what I want you to do. Abram, here's what I want you to do. Two things I want you to do. One, I want you to be blessed, and two, by your actions, I want you to be a blessing. Now, if we told you that as a believer, would you accept that? Or are you going to tap the brakes and say, oh, just uh, wait a minute. If you say that, people will just do whatever they want. If we don't lay out the rules of what's right and what's wrong, people will just go and do their own thing, and that won't be acceptable. We must establish the bricks by which we measure things to say that we've risen to God's level so that we can be accepted. And we step back into the whole problem of the Tower of Babel. So you have to read chapter 12 and go, wait, this is the Garden of Eden all over again. I will provide this for you. I will do this for you. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. What I want you to do is be blessed and be a blessing. Just don't sin. 
stay close to me in communion, listen to my voice and do what I tell you, what I guide you to for your own well-being. And as you do that, that's going to strengthen our communion, and you're going to know my will to such a level that you're going to come back into the likeness of God, not to be like God, but you're going to come back into your created purpose of knowing the heart of the Father without having to strive to be accepted by the Father. So God lays out this covenant, this, this promise to the people of Adam, to Noah, is amplified by the promise with the pledge to Noah, but to never destroy the earth again. But now this word covenant is, is, is another layer. There's a, there's a whole series. I remember taking this when I was, when I was first, second year of ministry. And at that time, got the cassettes and listened to them and transcribed the whole thing and, and chewed on this for years, is the blood covenant, the Hebrew blood covenant. When you understand that, you, you all of a sudden, the, the Bible just begins to make sense. Because what's the pivotal thing in, with Jesus' time? This is my body and this is my blood, which is the what? Not a trick question. It's the new covenant. And if we don't understand what the old covenant was and what a covenant is, we don't really understand the new covenant. And when you begin to understand that, it just opens everything up. It's amazing. What a covenant would normally be, and, and if it was just between people, if, if, if Duane is a, is a builder and, and, I, and I'm a, whatever I am, I don't know, whatever complements what you do, then we might say, we're going to enter into covenant together. But, but we do it to, to a greater, it's not just a contract, right? Say, you know, I'll supply the materials, you build them, and then we, you know, this, this is a benefit both of us. That's a, that's a contractual agreement. A covenant would be, we cut covenant, and, and some, if you remember the old John Wayne movies, they would cut their palms and put their palms together, and, and they would make a blood covenant. If you're my age, you might have done that with your buddies, thinking it was cool, but you might have, or that if you were safe, you'd spit on your hand. Remember that? You'd make an agreement. That's a blood, that was a covenant. But if we made a covenant, we would go through this whole ritual, which is almost like a marriage. But if, if Dwayne ever bought his products from somewhere else, he would forfeit his life. And if I was ever, you know, as a supplier, I, I ran out of funds, I could just go, Dwayne, not can I have some money, can I have a loan? I could just go to your bank account and just take it because it's like we become one. And God makes this covenant with mankind, which is pretty amazing. Now, he makes this promise in chapter 12, Abram has to kind of take this journey. It doesn't always go well. You find Abram makes some bad choices along the way. There's consequences, and then they come back to communion. And they come back into this communion time, and in Genesis chapter 15, they get to the point where the actual ceremony begins to take place. Where the two, and like I say, a covenant in those days, the Hebrew blood covenant would almost be like a marriage ceremony. And there's a lot in the marriage ceremony that is out of the Hebrew blood covenant. But they would enter into this and they would stand face to face and they would make a vow to one another or, or make a pledge to one another. And then they would go through this ritual that ended with, with wine and with bread. And it should have been Abram standing 
in the center of that with God. But something, something very profound happens. It says, Abram was put into a deep sleep and observed in the spirit realm what was taking place. And it says when he looked, there was two things. There was a, a smoking fire pot and there was a flaming torch. One was the source, the Father. The other was from the source, the torch. But it stood in the place of mankind. And in a sense, God made covenant with mankind, but, but God took the place of mankind in order that the, the covenant would be uncorrupted. And it sets a pattern for how God would deal with us. Fascinating, fascinating part. You can spend weeks looking at that. So Abraham enters into this covenant. He has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. They begin to be blessed. They begin to multiply. But things don't go so well for the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. For Abraham and Sarah, they end up about 200 years after God makes a covenant. Jacob, his grandson, ends up going into Egypt not too long after being in Egypt, several, several generations. The Egyptian pharaoh takes them into captivity, into slavery, because they're growing at such a rate, and, and he makes them slaves, and they're slaves for about 400 years. Now, in those 400 years, they begin to forsake God. They begin to lose their identity of who they were as God's chosen people, they began to lose the sense that God was their God. They gave up hope. They're slaves. They're in chaos. They're in confusion. They're not worshiping God. They can't worship God in many ways, but they're, they've grown distant. There's a remnant there that seems to be still present, but for the most part, they've grown distant from it. They're in utter chaos, utter confusion. And what does God do when we're in utter chaos and utter confusion? And you get to Exodus chapter 6. God shows up again. God shows up to a man who is not looking for God. To Moses, who's in exile, in the wilderness. Because he tried to change things in his own ability, in his own power. He tried to liberate his people, and it didn't go well. He's now out in the wilderness. He's tending sheep, and he has this encounter with God. And God says something. God says, I'm going to restore this covenant because I'm obliged to it. And in a kind of a snapshot, he says, I, you will be my people, and I will be your God. Not as a new thing, but as a restorative thing. I'm going to restore the relationship that we have, the communion we have. I am going to restore that. And as I do the work to restore that, you are going to know that you're my people and you're going to know that I'm your God. And so you know the story, and again, fascinating, tons of stuff in there. You have all these plagues, you end up leaving Egypt. They don't leave Egypt as slaves. They leave Egypt with the wealth of Egypt. They go out, they have this miraculous crossing of the Reed Sea. They get out into the wilderness. They're being promised this land, the land where Abram had been, and they're, they're heading towards that. And as they're making this, this beeline, beeline across the, the wilderness, God is taking them to a mountain. 
Now remember what a mountain is, right? A dwelling place of the gods. And they, he, God directs Moses right to Mount Sinai, and they park there. And excavation today has this, this mountain with a scorched peak. It's a fascinating mountain in parts of Saudi Arabia. And the reason it's scorched peak is because God invited the people to all come and worship, and they were, they were terrified because when God invited them in, there's thunder and there's clouds and there's fire and there's smoke, and it's, it's kind of scary. And the people kind of distanced themselves and said, Moses, why don't you go for us? Why don't you just... You go up there, find out what he's doing, what he's all about. Because they didn't know God. They had lost God in their slavery. So Moses goes out from the camp with everybody blessing him. And he goes up up this mountain and he encounters God. It says in in the smoke that enveloped the mountain and the smoke and the fire that's there, God came upon Moses and spoke to him and changes Moses. And Moses is given, we call them Ten Commandments, it was more like ten statements from God. Ten declarations. Powerful event. Took about 40 days. Not all that long considering the 400 years they were in captivity. But by the time Moses comes down, in Exodus 32, you find that what happened. Instead of just waiting 40 days in in communion with God, just waiting for the, the commissioning, they looked and go, we have to do something on our own. And all we know is the gods of, of, that we came from, the gods of Egypt that, that aren't our God. They aren't Jehovah God, but they're the only gods we know. So let's, let's go back to what we know, and, let's, and they build a calf, this golden calf. And there's a whole lot of stuff packaged in that. And Moses comes down, and he sees what they've done. Because instead of drawing to God they begin to turn and do their own thing. They make their own choices, trying to do what's right, trying to do what in their head would be the right thing to do. But it wasn't what God asked them to do. This wasn't a worship of Jehovah God. This was a worship of their superstitious gods. So in Exodus 32, verse 28, we see that in that story that that God came down upon Moses as fire. And Moses, in that fire, is given a word to speak. And he comes out of that fire, and he begins to... He wanted to speak those words. But they had already chosen another way. And the consequence of those actions was what you read here. It's very specific wording. About 3,000 died that day. You see that? Now, those of you who know know your your Bible stuff, I want you to, to fast track because 
That story is going to sound very similar to another story about fire coming upon and giving them words. And they go out and they share those words. And people hear those words and it pierces their hearts and they're transformed and they're baptized. And Acts chapter 2 says the exact same words about 3,000 were added to the kingdom that day. And when you see in Acts 2 that they spoke with a tongue that everybody understood, and you go, wait a minute, in Babel, the tongue was changed so that nobody understood. You begin to see this, this very clear message where God's saying, don't forget what I did back here, because what I did back here gives you, gives you the fuller picture of what I'm doing here. So 3,000 were lost, about 3,000 were lost, in Acts, about 3,000 were added. And you begin to see what the heart of God is versus the consequence to our own actions when we choose our own way. Now, in Exodus 40, Moses, well, the story goes, Moses went back up the hill and went, okay, because he, he crushed the 10 statements that he had, perfectly preserved, destroyed those. Goes back up and he gets more. Now, 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 it's unclear if he had all of this the first time or if he got this the second time. My theory is that he got this the second time because God said, okay, I want to keep this really simple to 10 statements. Now I'm going to give you 10 statements, but I'm going to give you 613 kind of guidelines of how to make this work. We're going to put training wheels on this thing and try it again. And they come back down, and one of the things that they gave Moses had was this very detailed, elaborate plan for this this tabernacle. And the tabernacle is going to be now the dwelling place of God that will be at the center of the camp for the rest of their journey. And, and Moses comes down with this detailed plan of the, 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 how it's supposed to be made, the dimensions of how it's supposed to be made, the very specific products that are supposed to be used, the fabrics that are supposed to be used, the colors, everything is laid out in extreme detail. After the service, go downstairs and see what Carlin's mother, grandmother, produced. And you can get the picture of this, this tabernacle. But when you get to Exodus chapter 40, it's this, it's this powerful story because they, they, they took the plans of God and they began to do all the craftspeople came and instead of making an idol, they began to forge the dwelling place of God, the symbolic dwelling place of God in some ways, but the dwelling place of God, and they put this all together. And when they, they came to the final part where they had to put the, the kind of the outer fencing around, they do that, and Moses is at least part of this part where he puts the final touches on this thing, and it says the moment he finished, that the glory came immediately when they finished. Remember last week we talked and said, how long does it take for Eve to lose the glory in, in an instant? As soon as they do what God asked them to do, instantly the glory shows up. And it says that the glory showed up with such intensity that Moses himself, who was in the fire up on the mountain, Moses himself couldn't walk into the temple, into the tabernacle, because the glory filled the place. A colleague of mine that, from, from the Maritimes, 
he used to have a saying, he would teach on some of this stuff, and he said, and his, his line that he would repeat over and over is, first the pattern, then the glory. That there are things that God asks us to do, not as, as, as performance, but here there's things that God asks us to do to prepare, to prepare our hearts, to prepare our lives, and then the glory. And for Moses, Moses had to walk these out as, a, as an object lesson for the people to begin to see that, that it's not through our striving. This isn't what we created. This is what God asks us to do. And when we do exactly what God asks us to do, his glory shows up. When we do what God asks us to do, then the glory shows up. In Babel, when we do what we think is best, then God will show up. And God goes, that plan doesn't work. That plan only leads to confusion and chaos. Do what I ask you to do, it leads to the glory. First the pattern, then the glory. So then if you were to fast track and go into 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it actually tells, it gives kind of frames it in with Moses and how even the, the, the great thing that Moses experienced there in the wilderness pales to what it is now on this side of Jesus. And in, in this passage in 2 Corinthians, it writes, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord there is what? Freedom. There's a word done package. We think it just means we can do whatever we want. The freedom is to be who God created us to be. We strive to be good enough. We strive to do things right. We strive to be just a perfect brick for God's building. And God says, no, no, no. In the spirit, there is freedom. There is the liberation. To be in communion with God and be who I've created you to be. And only there. And we all, he doesn't segregate that. He says those that, are, that are, are, are special, those who are in ministry, those who are deacons or elders. Those, he doesn't say that. He says we all, with unveiled faces, and you have to read what that means before, beholding the glory of the Lord are being, what's that word? Transformed into, look at this, the same image from one degree of glory to another. Somewhere in, in our, sometimes in our Christian walk, we begin to go, if I get my doctrine right, and I get my behavior right, and I get my disciplines right, and if I do all of this, then I'll be acceptable by God. And God goes, no, I want you to be in communion with me. And as you're in communion with me, I'm going to tell you and I'm going to guide you. And as you do what I guide you to do, you're going to experience my presence, my glory. And it's my glory that will transform you into or back into the image and the likeness that you were created to have in Genesis 1. You become holy, not by striving to be good enough. You become holy by dwelling in the glory of God, which is the communion 
with Christ. And in that, the transformation takes place because the Lord says, okay, here's what I want you to do. And we go, that seems so mundane. And the Lord says, just trust me. And we do it. And it changes us. The Lord says, and you come back in, you go, that wasn't so bad. The Lord says, that's because you can trust me. He says, now I want you to do this. And we go, well, that doesn't seem that bad. And we do that. And the Lord says, good. And we go, that wasn't so bad. And he goes, yeah, you know, you can trust me. And then the Lord says, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do this. And you go, I'm not sure I can do that, but all right. And then you do it, and it works. And you go, that wasn't so bad. God goes, yeah, I know. You can trust me. And then goes, now, I want you to do this. And it's something that you know before you could never have gone to. But in the glory, you learn to trust. And when you learn to trust, you can stand up and say, if you say so, then I'll do it. And we do it, and there's healing, and there's transformation that we could never obtain on our own by our striving and by our working and by our, our diligence to be right. Because the transformation doesn't come from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. It comes only from the tree of life. And when you begin to feed from that, that, that communion with God, it begins to restore what was lost from the time of your youth when your heart began to seek what was right and wrong and began to get corrupted by evil. And the Lord in his presence begins to strip those away and change those and transform those so that before you even realize, you're not just behaving differently, you are different. And sometimes we don't notice it because it's so gradual until we look back and you go, I could have never imagined doing this a year ago or five years ago. I could never imagine that when I saw that person, I wouldn't become overwhelmed with fear or anger or bitterness. But now there's nothing. Maybe there's even love. Because there's a healing and a transformation that only occurs in the presence of the Lord. When we're like Abram, that just accepts that the Lord wants you to be blessed and be a blessing. You see, that pattern we look at, it's not in the doing. It's in the communion. It's in the connection. And in the connection, there's a commissioning. There's things that the Lord's asked us to do, and there's things that, that you will be asked to do. And as you do those things, it enhances the communion. And if you don't, well, I say if. The reality is not if, but when, you don't get it quite right. Either because you don't want to and you want to do something different, which we could call sin, or because you just, you just don't get it and you make a mistake and you deviate. There's consequences. It doesn't mean it's going to be catastrophic every time. Sometimes it's just subtle. Usually it's gradual. 
But when we come to the realization that we've stopped, we've stopped nurturing the communion, we've stopped hearing the commissioning, we've stopped doing the things of the Lord, we've just gone into our routine and we realize, how long have I been doing this? And all of a sudden we wake up to that and we repent of that. He brings us back into the communion. But sometimes we, we get in such a habit of doing things, and maybe even sometimes we justify these behaviors that we begin to drift into the, the, the consequences, but the consequences don't alter us. We keep going, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in a state of chaos or a state of confusion. And we get to that point, and we go, oh, I've gone so far that God would never love me. God would never accept me, except the pattern that we've been talking about all through the Old Testament is in the times of chaos and times of confusion, what happens? God shows up. God shows up with a Noah, with a rest. says, this is the way. Shows up with an Abram that, that becomes an Abraham and says, this is the way. Shows up with a Moses and says, this is the way. Shows up with a Joshua and says, this is the way. I'm not your savior, but I'm following the one who's telling me what to do. And, and it leads us back to rest. Now, here's the thing that's remarkable. Is you have this wilderness experience. You have God in the mountain. You have the temple with the glory of the Lord showing up. You have all these things of pillar of fire by day that, or a pillar of fire at night that keeps them warm and a, and a cloud at day that keeps the sun off them so they're sheltered. God feeds them with this manna that's and then they get into the promised land and they build their temple and they worship. God protects, God delivers. And after all of those experiences, what do they do? They drift. And they drift and God sends prophets and God sends messages and God has consequences that are meant to get their attention and they don't listen and they continue to drift and they continue to drift and they continue to drift and they're taken off into exile. They go into confusion. And you would think that when they go into exile, that should be it. God should say, I've done everything. You've made all the choices for hundreds of years that has wound you up in a land that is not the promised land. But what does God do when they're in exile? He has a message. Hold on. Jeremiah, it's going to be 70 years, and then, then when it's up, and, and some of them began to realize, oh, 70 years is up. I guess we can expect that God's going to deliver us back. Let's get ready. And when you go to the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 6, after Nehemiah rebuilds the temple, here's a fascinating passage just embedded in this little story. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. They had been in captivity for 70-some years. But when the exiles returned, they celebrated Passover, their deliverance. They came back into the communion. They read the law and it broke their hearts. And Nehemiah stands before all of them and says, don't, or Ezra stood behind before all of them and says, don't weep. The Lord isn't holding this against you. I want you to feast. I want you to eat the fat and drink the wine. And I want you to give portions. And then that, that line that I used many times in my life, 
where he says, and I want you to know this, that it's not the sorrow of the Lord that will fuel you. It's not the shame and the guilt that will fuel you. It's the joy of the Lord that will be your strength. Come back into communion. Experience the glory, the joy of the Lord, and be restored. Now, this thing, the glory, we might not fully understand it. And sometimes we think the glory of the Lord is the, that, that tingly experience that we have, that, that almost mystical experience. Have you ever had that? It's, it's, it's amazing. It's great. You, you just feel it. It's just like electricity. And sometimes that's what the glory of the Lord is, and, but it's not always that. And sometimes we, we think, well, the glory of the Lord is that, that reverence that makes you drop to your knees or fall on your face and you don't even want to move. You feel like the air weighs a thousand pounds. And you're almost scared to move because the presence of God is so strong and I've had that before. And sometimes that is the glory, but it's not always that way. And sometimes we think, well, the glory is going to be the thunder and the trumpets and the the dramatic and the the shaking and the clouds and the smoke. And sometimes it is that. Sometimes you hear sounds when you're worshiping that you go, "That's that's not an earthly sound. And it's amazing. But the glory isn't always that. You know how you always know the glory? The one characteristic of the glory is the peace that we feel. Whether it's an electrified, mystical experience, there's peace afterwards. If it's a reverence that that puts you to the floor, it's a peace afterwards. If it's a dramatic event that happens in your life, it's the peace that comes after that. And it's the peace where God says, you're now right where you're supposed to be. You're in communion with me. Remember this and don't lose it. Hear my voice, follow my lead, stay in this sweet spot. And when you feel and all of a sudden you realize you've drifted out of that, come back to it. Not through striving and works, but through repentance and just, Lord, I want to know your peace. I want to know your presence. And in that place of peace, it doesn't matter what's happening around us doesn't matter how well we feel like we're doing or how bad we feel like we're doing. When we're in the glory of the Lord, we have the peace, and that peace has a way of saying to our innermost being, it's going to be all right. Just trust me. Stay the course. Don't, don't squirt out and try to do your own thing. Just trust me. Stay in my presence. Do what I tell you to do. Follow my lead. Follow my peace. It'll get you to the place of rest. And that was the Old Testament. And next week we'll get into the next part, which is, out of all the stories of Jesus, it's one that, that so changed my view of everything that showed me that his love for me was so great. And that's the power of the Word of God.
It's just when we think we have it all figured out. He goes, let me show you something. And that's the anticipation we want in our lives. Not just for the experience, not just for the knowledge, not just to have everything right, but to know that presence and to live in it. And that's what we need in these days. And you talked about wanting to see a new thing. You know where you discover the new thing? In the presence of the Lord. So let's pray for that. Lord, we thank you for your, your word and that, that steadfast commitment that you have to pursue us even when we, we are on a full run from you. Lord, we thank you that even when we're in feeling that we're in times of chaos or utter confusion, that somewhere deep inside we can have that faith that you're, you're not about to do something, that you are doing something. And we may not see all that you're doing right now, but we are sure that you are preparing and orchestrating things, not only for this church, for this nation, but for us as individuals. And Lord, we want to know your deliverance. We want to know your hope. And we want to live in your peace. So Lord, we, we, we lay down those things that we have put on that are not of you. And we come back to you to be in that communion and that relationship that allows us to see the love that you have for us, allows us to see that we're created for your work, and allows us to see others the way you see them. So Lord, as we worship you with our hearts open, we just want your spirit to speak to us. Love us, love on us, but Lord, give us that, that leading of what we can do next to enhance that glory. And we trust you, Lord, with everything that we are and with everything we have. We trust you. In Jesus' name.